Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 33. Uh, This is found on page 827 and 828 in the Pew Bible. Uh, And as we say each week, uh, we do hope that every home, every person owns a copy of God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, if you know someone that needs a Bible, uh, that one is yours for the taking. Um, So please avail yourself to that if you need it. But this is the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, then his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, They were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul. And thank you for uh, coming, all of you. We're really grateful that you're here, and thanks for uh, coming out when there was a lot of hype saying that wasn't maybe a good idea. So thanks for coming. Um, This is just another another reminder that we pretty much never, ever, ever cancel ever on Sunday. Um, So we will be here. John and I can both walk, so... Uh, it's hard for us uh, to cancel because we can, we can walk and, and be here. But as we begin and look at this passage that Paul uh, read for us, we'll begin as we always begin looking at God's Word um, by responding to Him in prayer and asking for Him to help us to more fully understand what He wants to reveal to us. So we'll do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you speak to us, and we know that um, on our own, in our, uh, in our own uh, state, that we don't want you, we're not interested in you. Um, and so we pray that your spirit would uh, bring uh, life to us and attract us to the goodness and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Um, and I pray that we would see that clearly in this text um, here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week I started reading uh, a new book that's out getting a lot of play called uh, Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. It's 
published by the University of Chicago Press. And it's one of those books that people really from all over the political spectrum are reading and uh, agreeing with and disagreeing with. And so those sorts of books always pique my interest, and I'm not far enough along in the book just yet to know uh, fully what I think. But one thing, um, the author, John Anazu, who's a law professor at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, makes clear, and, and honestly, you don't really need to read confident pluralism to, to know this, but he spends time at the beginning of the book just talking about how deeply divided we are as a culture in a country. And, right, I mean, you don't have to look further than just the events that are happening uh, this coming week, right? We already talked about a little bit the, in the prayer that tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, celebrating that. What a marker of a, a historic and continuing division in our country and tension around race and race relationships in our country and in the church. And then Friday, inaugurating a new president and how contentious the political scene has been and continues to be in our country. Deep divisions, Right? As humans, we're, we're pushed deeper and deeper into our own beliefs and agendas and ideologies, and we, we've lost, in many cases, real dialogue and compassion and the ability to work together and understand people who, who disagree with us. And we expect everyone to agree with us all the time. And, and if, if they don't, we, there's not just, oh, they just disagree with me. We, we vilify them and make them the ultimate enemy. We want to know who's in my corner who are my people who shares the same agenda, the same beliefs? I mean, you just look at Facebook, right? We can, we can vote on, on every possible idea out there with our, with our likes or worse, um, with all of the, the hate-filled comments that follow. We want to know who's in our corner. And then if we're honest, we look at Jesus and we sort of expect the same thing right? We want to know, is he in our corner? Surely he agrees with me. And surely Jesus, knowing everything that I knew, would have voted the same way I did. Sure, he hates all the same policies and people that I do and likes all the same people and policies that I do and supports my personality and my desires. <clears throat> and it's shocking, isn't it, how much the Jesus we imagine looks just like us? Um, I mean, this is what, if you type Jesus in my corner into Google Images, this is what you find, actually, is this picture, um, which there's a lot of things wrong with. I mean, I kind of wish that that picture didn't exist, and I have a lot of questions. Like, someone spent time making that? Like, I wonder for who or for, for what reason? Um, just a lot of questions. Uh, and, and it makes us laugh, right? But it, it also should make us cry a little, not just because it's bad art, which clearly it's that, um, but because this is all too often what we do with Jesus. We, we try to put him in our corner, make him a caricature, make him look like, I mean, at least, you know, he's, uh, he's clearly very white and Anglo, you know. Um, Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jew who probably was only five and a half feet tall, maybe, or whatever. Um, we make Jesus look like us. And some of us only want Jesus if he gives us our answer. And if you're honest, some of us would just walk away if Jesus gave us an answer that contradicted ours. What would you ask Jesus? And if he disagreed with you, what would you do? Because we either assume he'd agree with us on everything or, or we try to twist his words into agreeing with us or, or we just ignore the words of Jesus that we don't 
like or that don't seem to fit into our cultural moment. We either assume either way that, that we want Jesus to fit in our corner, don't we? But here's the thing, we aren't the first to want that. Lots of people all throughout history have wanted Jesus to fit into their corner, and we're studying the Gospel of Matthew, this sort of rich uh, theological biography of the life of Jesus. And from now until Easter Sunday, we're going to be focusing on the king's last week, Jesus's last week. Matthew, he devotes eight chapters of his book, his gospel, that's nearly one-third of the entire gospel, this final week of Jesus' life. In fact, someone once said that the gospels in many ways are, are passion narratives, narratives about Jesus' death and resurrection with long introductions, passion narratives with long introductions. That is that the, the gospel writers sort of fast forward over a lot of Jesus' life and teaching and slow down in this final week. And so as we turn to Matthew chapter 22 this morning, it's likely that we're in Tuesday of that final week of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Anthony walked us through good, uh, rather Palm Sunday, Jesus coming in, and then we saw Jesus in the temple coming back into the city that Monday. This is probably Tuesday as we work our way through this, this week to Good Friday and then ultimately to Easter in the life of Jesus. And he's in Jerusalem, and Matthew continues his account where we left off last week. And religious leaders are trying to entrap Jesus, trying to get him to contradict himself, to say something that will make the crowds angry or have the crowds turn against them so that they can have a reason to have him put in prison or killed. And they ask Jesus the controversial and hot-button questions of their day. And the people asking these questions only want him if he gives them the right answer. That is, if he gives them their answer. But the trouble is that Jesus won't fit into your corner. We have to fit into his. Jesus will not fit into our corner. We have to fit into his. And it doesn't matter what, what your corner is, and right, we all have different ones, right? Your, whether it's your political party, your, your personality, your likes, your dislike, your family values, your sexual identity, all these things, right? Jesus will not fit into your corner. We have to fit into his. And it's Jesus in this response to these two traps that these religious leaders try to set for him that he obliterates their categories and ours too. As we look at these two traps, it's important to remember that these were hot-button issues in their context. They're, they're not the hot-button issues in ours, but they speak into our lives just the same. Because here's the thing, controversial sort of hot-button issues topics, they, they change over time, right? They, the, the things that we are concerned about and passionate about and, and divided over today in 2017 are, are different than they were 50, 100, 200 years ago which is why we need a timeless Jesus to speak into our lives. Because think of all the things that, that your ancestors did or said or believed that you're ashamed of now, right? We, we look back 200 years, even 50, 60 years ago, and think, how could they believed that? Or how could they have thought that way about how science works? Or how could they, how could they have been so ignorant about other culture? Or whatever it might be, right? And as we're standing there doing that and thinking that, forgetting that in 50, 100 years, people are going to do the same thing to us, right? We, we fall prey to such a presentism that somehow this cultural moment is the one that's got it all figured out. 
No, every moment thought that. And 50 years later, their great-grandkids, 100 years later, their great-grandkids thought, how could they have gotten that so wrong? People will do that to us. (laughs) We need someone from outside of our culture speaking in, giving us truth. And first we see that Jesus won't fit into our kingdom. He won't fit into our kingdom. And the Pharisees send a delegation of their disciples along with a group of Herodians to try to trip Jesus up. And in a moment, I'm going to read that episode for you again. And and if you want to follow along again, it's on page 827 in the Pew Bibles. But before we read it again, I just want to point out a few key things before we read it again. So here are the things to, to look for, to listen for as we read it again. First, you have these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they did not agree on hardly anything except that they wanted Jesus gone. I mean, these groups couldn't be too more different in terms of their approach to life, their political ideologies, their person. And I was trying to think through what would be a good analogy. It would be like uh, the oil lobbyists and the Green Party working together on something. That's the kind of the, the disparate nature of these two groups. Uh, second, notice their flattery. They intentionally try to trap Jesus just even to having to answer their question. They don't want to give him any room to, to say no comment. Because they say, Jesus, you always tell the truth. Jesus, you don't care what people think. Right? They're, they're setting up, even before they ask the question, they're putting Jesus in a position that if, if he doesn't answer after all that flattery, it makes him seem like he does care what people think or he is concerned about appearances or that he doesn't know or isn't willing to speak the truth. And third, in order to understand why this question is such a big deal, we have to understand something about Roman taxes and coins. Now, taxes have always been controversial. That's, that's nothing new. Um, the Tea Party movement, right? I mean, this is always, all throughout history, taxes have been controversial. But imagine a world like the stories in The Man in the High Castle, if you're familiar with that Amazon series or the books that they're based on, um, where the Nazis won World War to instead of the United States and the Allies, and now the U.S. is under Nazi and Japanese rule. And we have to pay taxes to the Third Reich using their currency. It's a constant reminder of the oppression, but you also kind of had to pay it, right? You had to do it. This is what was the situation of Palestine. They'd been conquered by the Greeks and then by the Romans, and they had to pay taxes to Rome in Roman currency with Roman money, Roman coins, But there were groups who resisted this, at least in principles, and others who you might call them collaborators, who encouraged the paying of taxes to Rome to sort of advance their own political and social ambitions. That's the Herodians. The Pharisees were more aligned with those who said, maybe don't pay the tax or avoid it at all costs. And so if Jesus says, pay the tax, then the conservatives, the Pharisees, many of the people who align with them think he's a heretic. Jesus, how could you possibly say pay taxes to this oppressive, pagan, evil rulers over us? But if he says, no, 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 don't pay the taxes, then the Herodians, the liberals, uh, the Roman government and their collaborators will accuse him, consider him to be an insurrectionist, a rebel, an enemy of the state. And both groups are standing right there in front of him. They put this question to Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees. What will Jesus do? Well, listen again. 
Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to Jesus along with Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, and you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And they said to him, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Whose corner are you in, Jesus, they ask? Should we be loyal to the Romans or to the rebels? And Jesus answers by asking them for a coin. And right there, you see, Jesus already has them. He already has caught them. You see, because the coins were, were printed with, with Caesar's image and the image of a goddess on the, on the back. Because of that, they were considered like a, a, a graven image, which the Jews, an idol, they weren't supposed to even have this. They had to pay the tax, but they, they weren't supposed to carry these things around, much less in the, in the temple court. And Jesus says, well, give me a coin. And oh, I happen to have one right here. Jesus is already, you're, I can tell you're a hypocrite. You're carrying around this money. You don't really care about this question. Because the Romans allowed the Jews to use their own currency, their own coins, in their day-to-day transactions with one another. It was only when they were, had to pay the taxes they had to use the Roman currency. So not only do they have a coin like this, they want to know how many of them can they keep? How much taxes do we really have to pay? And Jesus answers brilliant. He says, give Caesar what is Caesar's. Give him his picture back. Give him what is his. Give to God what belongs to him. Your ultimate allegiance, love, obedience, and they're astonished. They're impressed by Jesus' answers, but they are unchanged. Because Jesus didn't fit into their corner. So they turn, they leave, they walk away, they're impressed, they marvel, but they don't turn and follow Jesus. They turn and they walk away and they leave him. And so the question for us is where is your loyalty? And it shouldn't ultimately be to politics or a political system or a, even a particular country. You see, Jesus makes it clear that whatever we think about politics, it's probably wrong, at least in part, which means that we should hold all of our political opinions and affiliations with great, great humility. Now, we should have political opinions and affiliations. We should. But because of our limitations, we ought to hold them with the greatest humility. And remember that everyone gets part of the story wrong, including us. I don't like thinking about that, that there's probably some things that in the view of eternity or even the view of 10 years or 15 years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, I, was, I thought I had that figured out, but I don't. We all get part of the story wrong. We all get part of the story right as well. It's called common grace. Jesus reminds us here that, that every government institution exists only by God's will. This is the lesson that we learned as we spent time in Daniel this fall, right? That, that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and all these kings, they only are there because God has allowed them to be, and he can raise them up and he can bring them down like that. 
And therefore, insofar as possible, we're supposed to respect those human governments and for some of us to even serve in them, to serve as elected officials or to work in government agencies. Christians should be the very best citizens. We are to seek the welfare, the flourishing of the place that God has placed us in our neighborhood, our city, our country. As commentator R.C. France points out so well, it's possible to be subject to the emperor as ruler, but at the same time still honor God as God. And yes, because our loyalty is ultimately to God, not to a country or political party, it does mean there will be times when we will come into conflict with human government. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. is a great example, classic example of this, as is Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II. We could look all throughout history, right, of of different people who have had to resist human governments. But the good news is that the gospel gives us an identity apart from politics, one that transcends political parties and issues and identities. And I think one of the reasons as a cultural, as a cultural context, as a cultural moment, as a country that we're so divided that as we've become increasingly less religious, not even increasingly less Christian, but just less religious in general, we look to politics, political issues and factions to define ourselves, to give us a sense of identity, who we are, where we belong, how we fit in. But you see, Jesus frees us from all of this. Give your allegiance to him and his kingdom. And in doing so, not only will you be better prepared for his kingdom that's coming, but will also make you the very best citizen of the one you're already in now. Next, Jesus shows us that that he won't fit into our idea of love. Jesus won't fit into our idea of love. And this is the second trap. Here it's a different group of religious leaders that confront Jesus. It's the Sadducees this time. And they were a religiously liberal uh, group in their day in contrast to the Pharisees who were much more religiously conservative. And again, many of the people were much more religiously conservative. Most of the the mass of the population was probably closer aligned, uh, if not in practice, but at least in ideals with with the Pharisees. And so they set Jesus up for another trap. If he agrees with them in their question, then he, then he alienates the, the people who tend to be more conservative. If he disagrees with them, he shows that he really is just a backwards, ignorant rabbi from Nazareth who isn't worth paying attention to. And their question has to do with the notion of resurrection, the afterlife, and you see, the, the Sadducees, they only held that the, the first five books of the Old Testament were authoritative, the, sometimes called the Pentateuch or the Torah, these first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And they denied that one day people would be raised from the dead by God. They, they more or less believed that when you died, you were just dead. Not unlike the beliefs of many non-religious people today, that life is just over. It just ceases to exist when you die. There is no afterlife. There is no resurrection, no life after death. And, and to show how ridiculous the idea of resurrection is in their minds, they put a story to Jesus about a woman who has had a very unfortunate series of marriages. You see, Jew, Jewish custom, this wasn't dictated by the Torah, but, but Jesus custom and, and the law of Moses regulated this practice, dictated that if a, a man died without an heir, if he died without a son to carry on the family name and the family land and property, then his brother was obligated to marry his widow and have children with her so the family line would continue and the land would be preserved and all this. So, Jesus, they asked, this woman has had seven husbands who die. 
which, by the way, when you think about the story, probably the police should investigate this woman just a little bit, right? I mean, it's, it's a pretty unfortunate uh, series of, of marriages, but this is just their story. And so seven of them, they all die in the resurrection of Jesus. Whose wife is she going to be? She can't be married to all seven of them. This is ridiculous, right, Jesus? What, how is this going to work? And Jesus responds not by repudiating the resurrection, but by reframing marriage. So listen again to Jesus' response here. He says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the dead, the God of the dead, but of the living. And again, when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. See, because these religious leaders, the Sadducees, they did not understand the scriptures or the power of God, they missed what was ultimate and what was penultimate. What was lasting, what was temporary, what was of the highest importance, and what was only of secondary importance. Jesus' followers will be raised from the dead and live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's marriage, though, that's temporary. And again, as with politics, Jesus shows us here that whatever we think about love is probably wrong, at least in part. So the question for us here is, where is our love? And just as in politics, when we try to find our identity and definition for our lives, so in our cultural context, we, we try to find transcendence and meaning and an experience of, of being enraptured in romantic love. And cultural anthropologist Ernst Becker, who wrote book called The Denial of Death a number of years ago, he notes that in a culture that denies God and divine transcendence, that romantic love becomes ultimate. So as a culture, he argues, becomes less religious, less focused on the divine. Again, not just Christian necessarily, but just religious broadly, that romantic love and then possibly art remain the only avenues to experience transcendence. And he writes this. He says, the love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. That's an incredible burden for another human being who's flawed to bear, right? In a word, the object, the person you're in love with becomes God to you. After all, what is it that, they, that we want? Only elevate a partner to the position of God. We want redemption, nothing less. We want redemption, nothing less. See, whether we're married or dating or single or divorced or widow, we are all faced with the temptation of making human romantic relationships the center of our lives, the place we find meaning and hope and redemption. Depending on your situation, Jesus' words here may either be terrifying or they might be a relief, right? Depending on your situation. For those of you here this morning who are in the midst of really difficult marriages, marriages that are just crummy, 
It may be a relief to know that that marriage has an expiration date, that it's not going to endure for eternity, that one day you'll no longer be given and received in marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. However, for many of us, Jesus' words are, are disturbing. What do you mean my marriage won't last into heaven? This person that I loved and cared and devoted my life to, what do you mean that it won't last? And again, this is hard for us to hear because we've made romantic love into an ultimate. But as G.K. Chesterton points out, love means loving the unlovable, or it is no virtue at all. Oftentimes, what we say when we talk about romantic love, what we really mean is we don't mean that kind of loving the unlovable sort of love that requires such sacrifice and pain and and anguish year after year of, of enduring in relationship and caring for a friend or a child or a spouse. We don't mean that kind of sacrificial, often heartbreaking love. We mean being in love feeling special, feeling wanted, feeling attractive, right? I remember having this moment of reading a marriage book a couple years after we married and describing that often as we were first in love, what we were in love with is not so much the other person, but the fact that someone else likes us so much. That's what we're in love with. Someone else out there who thinks I'm as great as I am. It's great. And ultimately, Jesus' teaching here, instead of minimizing marriage, he actually heightens our responsibility. You see, marriage is a picture, a living metaphor of Christ and the church. And so one day, when that ultimate marriage between Christ and the church takes place, the the picture will no longer be needed. Writer Brian Magna writes this. He says, in heaven, earthly marriages will have served their purpose and will enjoy forever what they were pointing to all along. Christ and the church. So if you're married, work hard to make your marriage a picture of sacrifice and forgiveness and joy. But know that when the true picture comes, the most enduring relationship we have with one another isn't marriage. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted him, if you've been made alive in him, the most enduring relationships that we have with one another ultimately aren't biological familial relationships or marriage relationships. They're, they're the relationship of brother and sister in Christ as we've been adopted into this family. In saying that marriage will not exist in the new heavens and new earth, Jesus is not so much diminishing marriage as is elevating our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in his new family. This doesn't mean that Rachel and I will be strangers in heaven, but our love will look different. Its purpose will have been fulfilled, and it will be okay. It's heaven. God is there. Everything that was the very best about that relationship on earth will be fulfilled by a factor of thousands. It's the transcendence we're really after. The feelings that were loved immensely, eternally, pleasure we can't imagine. I think that's what Jesus is getting at, is they don't understand the power of God. They don't believe that God can really be all that they ever could desire. And this should give us real hope now. Because if you're in a lousy marriage, again, it's not going to last forever if you're single and you wish you weren't, if you struggle with same-sex attraction but have chosen to honor God through celibacy, eventually in ways that I can't even explain, you will get what you've been waiting for. And often this seems so unbelievable to us, so implausible, because we haven't really taken stock, understood the Scriptures or the power of God. 
right? Think about it. Our world right now is amazing. It's a place of amazing beauty. I've just been re-watching the Ken Burns National Parks documentary. Our world is an amazingly beautiful place. But it's been corrupted by sin. If this is what a sin-corrupted world and nature look like, imagine a sinless creation brought to all that it's supposed to be. Jesus, he won't fit into our politics. He won't fit into our loves. And finally, he won't fit into our lives. He won't fit into our lives, but he invites us to fit into his. He won't be our hobby or our habit. He wants everything. Because maybe the question that you're asking is, is what gives him the right to be so demanding? So he won't fit into all this stuff for me, but why should I fit into his. Which is why the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, all these groups, they end up walking away from Jesus wanting nothing to do with him. But it's what we've seen all throughout Matthew that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer. He can walk on water. He can calm the sea. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He's brilliant. He's the one who responds with the Sadducees. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that it was said to you by God, I am Jesus hinges his argument on the tense of the word there. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the God of the, not of the dead, but of the living. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and the God of Isaac, but they're all dead. No, I am, because they're alive, meaning that he has made a way for us to live forever, forgiven and whole, welcomed into his kingdom, which is better, into his love, which is stronger, into his life which never ends. And if that's what he's offering, shouldn't we be asking, how can we fit into his life? If he won't fit into our corner, our gender, our cultural expectations, our identities, how do we fit into his? Let me just offer three really brief suggestions as we close our time together. First, you have to admit your limitations. Remember, realize that we all have cultural blinders and blind spots. Just again, as we said at the beginning, we look back 200 years ago and laugh or embarrassed by the beliefs of people in the past. How could they have been so ignorant? How could they be so narrow-minded? People will look back at our culture, your beliefs, in the same way that our great-grandkids are going to think, how could they have been so narrow-minded? How could they have been so ignorant? How could they have not understood how this thing worked? You see, we need someone else speaking into our lives someone from the outside. And that's why the Bible both affirms and critiques and offends every culture. Because it isn't the product of just one particular culture or time. It's ultimately God's word. And so in every culture, there are things that people readily agree with and say, yeah, I agree with that, but also I I can't get on board with that. That's true in every culture because the Bible isn't a product of one particular culture. We need someone without blinders, without blind spots, someone who sees the whole picture, who isn't bound by time or culture. We need Jesus. If you want to get into his corner, you have to admit your limitations. You have to get over this presentism that says our cultural moment in 2017 has it all figured out. Second, you have to ask honest questions. Jesus welcomes questions. There are a lot of times in the Gospels where people ask questions and he responds and interacts with them by helping them to see who he really is. 
but he doesn't like questions that are designed to trap him, questions to which we already have the right answer to. We're just trying to see if we can get Jesus on our side, in our corner. You see, and that's the difference between doubt and disbelief. You see, doubt and faith are not antithetical. Doubt and faith are not antithetical. Doubt is asking questions from the standpoint of faith, trying to understand, trying to believe, trying to wrestle with this. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a person of faith, and you journey with that for any amount of time, you're going to have doubts. You're going to have questions. That is not antithetical to faith. It's disbelief and faith that are antithetical. So bring Jesus your toughest questions. Bring them to your church family. Bring them to your pastors. Let's wrestle with them together. If you aren't already, start reading your Bible regularly and ask questions of it. Ask tough questions of it. You can use the, the Open Here Bible reading program that we put together here at church. It's printed each month in the, the monthly update. You can find it on the web as well and get it emailed to you or texted to you. Ask honest questions. And finally, you have to want him more. You have to want him more. If you're, and if you're not there yet, at least want to want him more. That's the step in the right direction. I don't actually want Jesus more than all this other stuff, but I think I want, I wish I could want him more than all this other stuff. You have to want him more than being right or being successful. You have to want him more than being comfortable or being in a relationship, more than getting the right answer that you want. You have to believe that Jesus is better than your politics, better than any power structures, better than the very best of human love, romance, and sex, better than whatever agenda you bring to him. Because after all, only he has the words that lead to eternal life. He is the only one who can say, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the only one who can give you an identity that you truly long for, the love that you can't live without, and the life that is everlasting. So come to him with all of your hardest questions, admitting your limitations, and want him more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would warm our affections, our loves, our desire for you, for your ways and your word. Show us the places where we twist or ignore your words. Help me to see those places where I just, I'd rather have it my own way, where it seems too costly to obey you. And will we be satisfied in Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.